0: Well, good morning. Glad you guys uh, could join us. This is uh, week three of our our five-week study on uh, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and 500 years ago uh, this month, uh, a guy named Martin Luther, uh, a monk uh, in Germany, uh, decided to start an academic debate by... Uh, nailing 95 theses or 95 statements that uh, he wanted to to bring for academic discussion within the church, uh, he had uh, began to to see things in his own personal study of the word that didn't line up with what the Roman Catholic uh, Church uh, had taught. So he said, "Hey, let, let's let's come and, and discuss these matters." But as he continued to study the word, he began more and more to see uh, that. Uh, the Bible was at odds with uh, what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. And so, uh, convinced that uh, Scripture alone should be the authority, he, uh, he started to uh, try and reform the church. And ultimately, it wasn't uh, a Reformation, but a, a church split, the largest one in history, uh, and that's... Uh, what has become known as the Protestant Reformation. And uh, as we've been looking at these five solas, we come this week, uh, having already looked at uh, sola scriptura, the doctrine of, of Scripture alone as our final authority. Last week we looked at, at grace alone uh, in terms of uh, who, who is responsible for salvation. Is it God or is it man? Uh, and it is completely by the grace of God. And this morning I wanted to look at uh, the third of the, the solas or, or grace uh, alone. Uh, not not grace alone, faith alone. Uh, and uh, so, as we look at, at faith alone, I wanted to, to share something uh, that I that I learned uh, by, by reading a book uh, about the Crusades. Uh, if you've ever talked with uh, people about the gospel, uh, many unbelievers have issues with Christianity because of uh, what took place uh, in the Crusades, the wars between. Uh, the Christians and Muslims that took place uh, from 1091-ish to about the 1290s. Uh, So for 200 years, there were wars uh, in the Holy Land uh, over uh, the city of Jerusalem and uh, Palestine. Uh, And oftentimes people will point to those and say, well, I I can't believe in Christianity, or I can't believe that the the things that were done in the name of Christ um, during the Crusades, so I'm going to reject everything completely. So wanting to know more about the Crusades... Uh, I read a book uh, by Thomas Asbury, it was entitled The Crusades, The Authoritative History uh, of the War for the Holy Land. I'm like, okay, it's authoritative, it, it's got to help me uh, in some way, and, and uh, unknowingly I, I learned uh, about the Crusades, but I also learned uh, something about the, the Protestant Reformation, and I wanted to uh, to share it with you this morning. So I'm going to quote uh, from this, this author, and he's a and, Uh, a non-believer, but listen to what he says. He explains how the the Crusades began. He said, On a a late November morning in the year 1095, Pope Urban II delivered a sermon that would transform the history of Europe. His rousing words transfixed the crowd that had gathered in a small field outside the southern French town of Clermont. And in the months that followed, his message reverberated across the West, igniting an embittered holy war that would endure for centuries to come. Urban declared that Christianity was in dire peril, threatened by invasion and appalling oppression. The holy city of Jerusalem was now in the hands of Muslims, uh, people, he said, were alien to God, uh, and they were bent upon ritual torture and unspeakable desecration. And he called upon Latin Europe to rise up against this supposedly savage foe as soldiers of Christ reclaiming the Holy Land and releasing Eastern Christians from servitude. Enticed by the promise that this righteous struggle would purge their souls of sin, tens of thousands of men, women, and children marched out of the West to wage war against the Muslim world in the First Crusade. See, the Pope had said, if you go and and fight, uh, your sins will be forgiven. It was quite the the, the earth-shattering sermon. Uh, And so in response to this, it's estimated that anywhere from 60 to 100,000 people set out from Europe in the First Crusade. Uh, Men, women, children, knights, uh, regular uh, lay people, uh, they they all went to attempt to deliver the Holy Land from the hands of the Muslims. The author continues, he says, by constructing an ideal of Christian holy war Mm -hmm. in which acts of sanctified violence would actually help to cleanse a warrior's soul of sin, the Pope was opening up a new path to salvation for his Latin flock. And so, over a hundred years later, uh, another pope uh, kind of clarified this uh, this policy of offering salvation to people if they would go and fight. Uh, and uh, what this pope, uh, Innocent III, promised was that there would be a, a spiritual reward, which became known as an indulgence. Uh, so, hey, if you go fight, there's this spiritual reward, uh, and The Pope promised uh, that anybody who would take up the cross, and again, I put that in in quotes, uh, by going and fighting in this crusade, would be completely forgiven uh, for their sins, both here on earth and in heaven. Well, uh, 15 years later, not many people still wanted to make that trek. The war had been going on for 100 years, uh, and people are are not as motivated to go to a a land several thousand miles away that's hostile to you and, and go and fight a war, and so uh, what the Pope did, he, he kind of uh, updated the, the teaching of the church. And what he said was that uh, now uh, he he expanded uh, this indulgence of, of this promise of forgiveness. Not only, uh, he says, you could be forgiven if you go and fought, but if you, if you weren't able to make it, if you weren't able to go fight, guess guess what, you could just make a, a donation. Uh, you could make a donation to support uh, the Holy War, and then you would be forgiven. And... Uh, The author, again, of this book says, "...this extraordinary reform may have been well-intentioned, designed to bring the crusade both financial and military resources and to extend the redemptive power of holy war to a wider audience, but it established an extremely dangerous precedent. The idea that spiritual merit could be bought with money spawned the development of a comprehensive system of indulgences." perhaps the most widely criticized feature of later medieval Latin Catholicism and a key factor in the emergence of the Reformation. And it was this system of indulgences that developed during the Crusades that Martin Luther took issue with, because he began to see uh, the the, the poverty that, that was being brought upon the people of Germany. Now he's looking and seeing that poor people doing everything that they could to go and raise money to try and buy these indulgences to save their own souls, or to purchase the salvation of somebody else, some other member of their family. And this is what kickstarted the Reformation. This is what encouraged him to to post his 95 theses for discussion. But 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 notice that the, the Crusades were built upon false teaching. That you can earn salvation through your own efforts, or even worse, that you can earn salvation by going and fighting against somebody else. And, and, and in the Crusades, you had both sides teaching this doctrine. So, hey, if, you, if the Crusaders were told, if you go and fight against the Muslims, you'll be saved. And what were the Muslims told? If you go and fight against the Crusaders, you'll be saved. And, and that's why what we're talking about this morning is so important. This doctrine that, that faith alone saves. Because if this doctrine of works based salvation, that you can go and earn your salvation, if, it's one of the most dangerous ideas in the world. Why is it the most dangerous idea in the world? Is because if, if a teacher stands up and, and says, you can go be saved if you do this, what are people going to do? They're, they're going to go do that. Uh, and so whether it's uh, go and, and purchase this and you'll be saved. There's a lot of guys on TV that, that say that same thing today. Hey, if you, just give, if you send your money this way, you'll be saved. Uh, and in the same way, uh, if, you, if you stand up and say, hey, if you go fight against this people, you'll, you'll have reward in heaven. If, if you go do this or if you go do this, people will, will go and, and do what uh, a teacher will say. And that's why the Reformers called out loudly and clearly that the only authority that we have is God's Word. Now that is the authority that we are to to trust and to hold dearly. Uh, and so, in the Crusades, when you, when you have these two religious systems who are both saying, "Go fight and you'll be saved," you end up with one of the worst tragedies in human history. The, the atrocities of the Crusades uh, should be a stumbling block to everybody. Uh, and when we're speaking with people and they bring bring up the Crusades. Uh, we should first and foremost grieve with them. We should say, yeah, I, I I am so saddened that there were all of those acts of violence committed in the name of Jesus Christ. Th- those were completely sinful and wrong. That There is no sanctified violence in the name of Christ. There's only sinful violence in the name of Christ. So we should first and foremost be grieved with them, but then we should use that opportunity to say, hey, but... But let me let me talk to you about the crusade that was actually built not on what is taught in the Bible but that's built upon a false teaching and you can you can lay out this very idea that if if you say you you can earn your salvation people will will go and attempt to earn their salvation uh, and you can share with them the true gospel of Jesus Christ that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone uh, so if you think bad theology isn't dangerous, just look to the Crusades. But uh, as, as we saw, this, this system of indulgences that prompted the Reformation, uh, and uh, as we look at these, these five uh, key doctrines uh, of the Reformation, this is, this is going to have some overlap with the others, but it's also going to be kind of the capstone. Uh, that, that salvation isn't by uh, something that you do, it's not something that you earn, but it is by faith alone, by the grace of God alone. Uh, and if you, I remember to print out my handout this week, last week I did not, but if you have your, your handout there, uh, and and there's going to be a little bit of overlap uh, between grace alone and faith alone. See, see grace alone uh, answers the question, who is responsible for salvation? Uh, and, and the answer, uh, according to scripture and according to the, the reformers, was that God is responsible for our salvation. Uh, now, faith alone answers the question, how is salvation received? How is it brought from God to man? Uh, how, what's the instrument uh, by which we are delivered uh, and made righteous before God? And the answer to that is by faith. Well, uh, before we, we get into what faith alone means, we have to, let, let's talk about what is faith. Well, Hebrews 11.1, 1, the author says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, faith is believing in something that you, that you cannot see. Uh, and within the, the Reformation, they also uh, described faith as having three components. Number one would be, would be knowledge, that, that you must know who Christ is and what he has done and what he is able to do, right? You can't, uh, you, you can't know what you, or you can't believe something that you don't know. Now you, you have to have a certain level of knowledge in order to, to believe something. Uh, and so knowledge is the first component of faith. Uh, the second component would be conviction uh, that that we must not only uh, obey th- or know the truth respecting Christ, but we must also believe it to be true. So uh, one part of it is is knowing something intellectually. You have to have some some information, and then you have to be convinced that that information is true. Right? You guys are all sitting on on chairs. Uh, this morning and and you saw the chairs you know you know what chairs are Uh, my son who's six months old doesn't know what a chair is he thinks it's something to put in his mouth or at least the foot of the chair in his mouth Uh, so he doesn't know what a chair is so he can't use the chair but you knowing what that chair is you are able to uh, to then make a decision am I convinced that that chair can hold me Uh, can that will that chair uh, be steady and hopefully we've moved the chairs that aren't steady uh, into the into the back uh, but that you all make a decision based upon knowledge, and then am I convinced of this? Okay? Uh, knowledge and then conviction. And then thirdly, the third component of faith would be, am I going to trust it? So do I have the knowledge? Am I convinced that that knowledge is accurate, that it's true? And then am I going to trust myself based upon what I know and what I am convinced of? Uh, John Murray, uh, a pastor, said, that, that true faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ. True faith is a transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. So when we speak of faith alone, uh, we speak of faith, we're saying that, that you know who Jesus is, what he is able to do. You're say, we're saying that, that you are convinced... Uh, that what you know, that what the Bible teaches is absolutely true about Jesus. And then you're saying, I trust myself into his care. I entrust myself to him. Those would be the three components of faith. And and right along with faith, the other side of that faith coin uh, would be repentance. Uh, and repentance is is a U-turn. Uh, it's, a, it's a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. Uh, John Murray, that same author, uh, says that repentance consists essentially in a change of heart, mind, and will concerning four things. God, ourselves, sin, and righteousness. See, we're all uh, going in, in one direction. Let's say, let's say this wall over here is, uh, is sin and destruction. We all are naturally inclined to go uh, to that, that direction, that wall. That's where we want to, to run to. Uh, and that is uh, towards sin and destruction, and it is naturally away from From Christ from from God and so what repentance and faith means uh, they are two sides of the same coin inseparable is that we are turning at the same time as we're turning to Christ we're turning from sin can can I can I go both directions at once no uh, I I can't I have to to do an about face I have to do a u-turn and it is impossible to, to disentangle faith and repentance they're two interwoven with one another uh, to uh, to truly believe means that you will be followed with repentance. Uh, one leads to the other. so that is what we what we mean when we speak of faith uh, so now if if that is what faith is what it, what does faith alone mean? so so faith alone uh, means that that faith is the only instrument of salvation it's the only uh, way that salvation comes from God to man now every uh, every uh, other option is eliminated it 's faith alone it is exclusive, which means that works or success or uh, knowledge or or money or anything else in this life is unable to bring salvation right and now uh, now each and every day we all use instruments right you you hopefully maybe you brought a writing instrument uh, this morning you didn 't bring uh, a watch in order to take notes today right uh, you, you didn't uh, uh, take a uh, uh, well, maybe you, you took a skateboard, but the, maybe uh, to get here this morning. But the, but the best instrument, the best uh, tool to get you here this morning was probably a car, right? And, and so each individual task uh, has certain instruments that are, are best suited for it. Nobody tries to, uh, to hammer in a nail with a wet noodle. Uh, nobody attempts to, uh, to do things with the wrong instrument. And so this doctrine of faith alone means that there is only one instrument for the job of bringing salvation to man. Uh, and uh, there is an exclusivity to it. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. Uh, and so, if I'm going to make that statement, I better be able to back it up with Scripture. Well, if if you have your Bibles open, or if you want to open them up too, we'll start in Genesis. So where is this found in the Bible? And I would just say everywhere. Uh, it, it, it's part of the, the very weave of Scripture Uh, And from the very beginning, uh, this fact that salvation is by grace through faith is established. Turn to Genesis 6, starting in, in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So uh, all of humanity has sinned against God, and they do so continually. But look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, the, the concept of favor in the Old Testament is the same as grace in the New Testament. So even though all of humanity is in rebellion against God, what did God show to Noah? Grace. You Turn over just a few pages to uh, what Bruce read this morning in uh, Genesis 15. Again, we'll look at verse 6. Speaking of Abraham, it says, And he believed the Lord, and he, the God, counted it to him as righteousness. And this is this is really important because... From the very beginning of Scripture, what, what's the model for salvation? It, it's not work harder, it's not do more things, but it is faith. Believe. Uh, it is believe in God, believe in His promises, and you will be saved. You will be righteous before Him. Uh, additionally, you don't have to to look at these verses. I'll just I'll read them off, but you can write them down. Deuteronomy thirty, verse six. Moses in his last. Uh, sermon to uh, Israel, he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God and with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, you, you may say, well, there's nothing, there's no mention there of, of believing or faith, but, but listen to what is mentioned. It, it's not do these things, but it's God will transform your heart that you will love the Lord. It's not get, get your act together and then God may love you, but no, God will transform you by grace through faith. Listen to Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah, he says, "...seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The the call of the Lord is to to turn to him, to call upon him while while he may be found." Ezekiel says something similar in chapter 18, verses 31 and 32, where the prophet says, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. So the idea of repentance and faith, of cast away those transgressions and then do what? Get a new heart, get a new spirit, believe in the Lord. Verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Joel 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So so those are just some Old Testament passages, uh, and and they clearly teach uh, what is God calling for. He's calling for people to believe. Uh, he's calling for them to to turn to him in faith, but they don't necessarily uh, say that, that there is an exclusivity to faith. Uh, they, don't, they don't point that out, but but the New Testament clearly does. Listen to Galatians 2, uh, 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. And then Romans 3:28, which again we read this morning, for we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And some of you may have noticed that uh, that Bruce added a no uh, when he when he read that, and he and he so he actually. Uh, completely changed the meaning of that verse. Uh, but um, yeah, no, there is no one uh, who's justified by works, but we hold that uh, one is justified by faith, not by works. And then just listen to listen to these verses in the Gospel of John. These are, are from Jesus himself. The first one you'll probably be very familiar with, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Other verses in John that you may not be as familiar with, John 5:24, Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. And then John 6:40, For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, the, the clear teaching of Scripture is not do all of these things to earn salvation. It's not go fight against another group of people. It's not uh, go purchase an indulgence. It's, it's not go uh, and try and be the best person that you can be. But Jesus says, look look to him. Look to Christ, and you will be saved. Look to him, and you will have eternal life, and he will raise you up on the last day. That is, That is the clear teaching of scripture, and you kind of have to do gymnastics to avoid those verses uh, throughout scripture uh, and say that you have then to, to work in order to be saved. Now, now, does this idea of faith alone mean that obedience to Christ uh, has, has no part uh, in following him or in no part of our faith? Uh, is, does it mean that, that, that good works have no connection to faith? Well, I would say absolutely Absolutely not. Now listen to to this quote from, uh, from John Calvin. He says, We dream not of a faith which is devoid of good works, nor of a justification which can exist without them. While we acknowledge that faith and works are necessarily connected, we however place justification in faith, not in works, because by faith we apprehend the righteousness of Christ, which alone reconciles us to God. This faith, however, you cannot apprehend without at the same time apprehending sanctification. Christ, therefore, justifies no man without also sanctifying him. So the language he's using there, uh, justification of being, being declared righteous by God, of, uh, it, it's, it's a, uh, a courtroom uh, mentality uh, of, hey, you are, you are declared righteous before God simply by putting your faith in him. I think that's the air show. Uh, that is uh, uh, intervening this morning. I know. It's like, do we need to seek more shelter? Um, (laughs) But uh, back to our courtroom. The the justification is this legal declaration by God regarding you. If if you believe in him, if you place your faith in him, uh, you are declared righteous. But that doesn't mean uh, that you won't also be sanctified. See, this legal declaration is a one-time act, but but sanctification is this lifelong process whereby you become more and more like Christ uh, as you learn uh, about his word, as you learn who he is and what he has done for you. And, and these two doctrines of justification and sanctification, they're, they're distinct, but they're, they're inseparable. They're just like repentance and faith. You can't have one without the other. Uh, and, uh, and the Roman Catholic Church, was what they were attempting to say was that, uh, as, you, as you look on your, on your paper there, that uh, if, you, uh, if you have faith, you also need works in order to be justified. In order to be righteous before God, you have to have faith and works, and the reformer said, "No, wait a second. I don't see that in Scripture." Paul Paul goes out of his way to say, "No, f- works don't play uh, a part with faith. It's faith alone." Uh, the Reformation teaching was that faith leads to justification, and those who are justified will also have works that, that accompany that because uh, that's the fruit of salvation. Turn with me to to James chapter two. Uh, this is uh, one of the, the favorite passages of uh, of Roman Catholics, uh, to to try and point to faith and works as a means of salvation. And interestingly enough, uh, Martin Luther couldn't couldn't grasp what James was saying, so he actually tried to exclude uh, James from from the New Testament. But that that's another uh, that's another story. But as we look at James chapter two, starting in verse fourteen. We can rightly understand what James means, and he's providing balance uh, instead of just saying, hey, there's, it's only faith and then there's nothing else uh, that, that results from that. But let's begin reading in verse 14. James writes, what, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, even the demons believe and shudder do you want to be shown uh, do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son isaac on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and scripture was and the scripture was fulfilled that says abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So uh, if you just pull a verse out of its context, uh, as many people do, they'll point exactly to James 2.24 and say, look, it's not faith alone, it's by works as well. Uh, but, but, but let's look at what James' argument is here. Uh, see, he is... He's pointing to, to Abraham, right? And, and as we read earlier this morning, Abraham was, was declared righteous by faith. Anyone remember where that was in Genesis? Genesis 15. Okay, so it's important to keep a timeline of this. So Abraham believes in God, and he's declared to be righteous in Genesis 15. Uh, and then, a little bit later, there's another action of Abraham that is quoted here in James. And what, is that? what action is that? The offering up of his son Isaac. And, and uh, Isaac was offered up by Abraham in Genesis 22. So, so the point that James is making is not that, that Abraham was justified because he offered his son. When was Abraham justified? Not in Genesis 22, but already in Genesis 15. What James is saying is that you know that Abraham's faith is real because of what he did in Genesis 22. See, I, it's one thing just to say, Oh, I believe... Because when you say that, is there any outward evidence of that? Do you have, like, does your skin color change? Or do you have, like, a stamp on your forehead of, like, this is one who believes? How do you know if somebody truly believes? Well, it's, it's demonstrated by their actions. Just like we talked. That, that's repentance and faith. How do you know if someone truly believes? Well, there, there's a change in direction. How do we truly know that Abraham believed the promises of God? Because he was willing to sacrifice his only son that he, that he had waited 25 years for. He, he'd waited, he, he was 75 uh, when we're introduced to him, and he's 100 when Isaac is born. And after God, for years, had promised a descendant, and what we read in Genesis 15 was, was it's, God had promised offspring, and, and Abram's like, hey, where are they? I'm waiting. God, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my, my watch here, and, I, and I'm waiting. When are you going to bring them? But when Abraham truly understood what God was saying, was convinced that it was true, and then trusted in that promise, he was declared righteous. And then what James is saying, we know that that Abraham truly believed when he acted, when his works aligned with what he had said. That is what is being spoken of in James chapter 2. It's not that, that works save you it's that no works are going to be the natural result if you if simply 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 says oh yeah i believe uh you have no evidence works are the evidence of faith but works do not save you uh, and so uh as we saw earlier the, the roman catholic church had been teaching for for hundreds of years that you can why that you can earn your salvation by doing certain acts uh, we've, we've talked about that in, in weeks that have gone by, and the reformers come and say, "No, it, 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 there's no action that you, you that you take to earn salvation. Salvation comes by faith alone." Now, now that happened 500 years ago. Why is that? Why does that still matter today? Why are we still talking about that? Why is this uh, matter for your everyday life? Well, well I have some. Uh, a list here that I wanted to, to talk through. Why does this doctrine of, of faith alone still matter today? You know, well, number one, this doctrine deals with how a person gets right with God. Right? And, and because of what it, it deals with, that is the most important reality in reality. Uh, I'm at a loss for words. That, that is the most important uh, topic that, that everybody needs to wrestle with how do I get right with God? And usually you don't have to convince people that they need to get right with God. Everybody knows uh, that if they have to stand before God and give an account, that they will stand guilty. They know that. Their, their conscience uh, convicts them of that. that. There is nothing more important than what this doctrine of faith alone deals with, of, hey, how do you get right with God? So that, that's the first overarching reason this doctrine is still important. It is important for uh, all people and at all times because it answers that question. Secondly, this doctrine is the very heart of the Christian faith. This doctrine of of faith alone uh, separates true biblical Christianity from every other religion in the world. Roman Catholicism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, it, it separates us and makes us distinct Uh, Martin Luther says this is the the doctrine that the the church rises or or falls with. He says exactly this. He says, if the article of justification by faith is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. Uh, It is the article on which the church stands or falls. See, every other world religion will say, you need to work. You need to be better. You need to try harder. You need to do these things in order to be acceptable before God. But, but the Bible says your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. That when you try and bring your, your good deeds before God and say, Hey, God, look what I've done. You're like, Why are you bringing that to me? Why, why are you bringing me filthy rags? We wouldn't, we wouldn't bring filthy rags to the president uh, or, or to the governor. We wouldn't say, Hey, look, look at what I've accomplished. Aren't you proud of me? What would, what would that human authority say? Are you crazy? Why are you bringing me this? Uh, every other religion says that's what you need to bring to God, is good works. But, but the Bible says you can't bring good works to God. All you can do is believe. You can trust in him and cry out for mercy, cry out for grace, and then you will be saved. Because there's nothing you can do that will, that will outweigh your sin. This doctrine is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Thirdly, this, this doctrine removes the burden of trying to earn salvation. Like I said, every other world religion will say, just try harder, just do more, be a better person. But that is exhausting, right? And again, the, the, the question is always raised. if This burden that I have of, of trying to earn salvation, the, the question always hangs out there. Have I done enough? Is God pleased with me yet? Or then, hey, I, I thought I had done enough yesterday, but now I messed up today. So what does that mean? I'm back to square one, and now I have to earn my way back up each and every day. That is a, a tremendous burden. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day, that's what they were teaching. You need to try harder. Obey the law of Moses. Keep, keep keeping the law. Try, try harder. Do more and do more. And this is what Jesus said to the people who were weighed down by that. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, this gospel by by faith alone removes the burden of trying to, every single day, trying to earn your salvation. And, And that is intended to 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 lift that burden and to give you... What what word keeps being repeated in that? Jesus says, I will give you rest. Uh, You can rest by faith in the promises of God, not trying to continually earn your salvation. Justification by faith alone removes the constant and, in essence, everyday eternal burden of trying to please God in your own strength and works. That's what uh, this doctrine removes, but it also imparts hope. That be reason number four. This doctrine gives us the hope of salvation, because if I have to earn my salvation, I have no hope. I quoted uh, John MacArthur uh, last Sunday. He said, he said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Right? That's the reality. If I can't, uh, I, I'm not good enough to, to, to keep my salvation, to earn my salvation. Uh, and the reality, if I have to earn my salvation, I have no hope. I can't do it. But the fact that, that salvation has been accomplished for me, and now all I need to do is look to Christ in faith, that gives me hope. That's a salvation I can accomplish because it's not based upon what I've done. Uh, that, that gives me hope. Justification by faith alone gives us hope that salvation can be ours. During a, a debate with a, a Roman Catholic cardinal, John Calvin noted that, that sola fide, he says... This is the, the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. Talking with this Roman Catholic cardinal, he says, this is, this is the first area of disagreement that we have. But then listen to what he says. He says, and if removed, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion is abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. See, Calvin understood, if it's up to me, I have no chance. Uh, I love the way another pastor uh, describes this. Uh, he says, God has made a way by his grace to save the sinner, not based on anything righteous that they have done, but by the righteousness possessed and accomplished by Jesus Christ. By faith, the sinner must believe that Jesus went to the cross and died in their place. The innocent for the guilty. By faith and through repentance, the sinner must believe. That the penalty for their life of sin was removed from them and placed on Christ. By faith, the sinner must believe that the greatest, or the perfect righteousness of Christ was credited to their account. This is the great exchange. That when God looks upon Christ on the cross, He says, "Cursed," and when He looks at the sinner, He declares, "Justified." This is what it means to be justified by faith apart from works. Its importance cannot be overstated. It is the heart of the gospel, which is the only way sinners can be justified before God. Of that, that is the, the exchange that takes place of uh, our sin gets placed upon Christ and his righteousness is placed upon us. Uh, it gives us the hope of salvation. Fifthly, this doctrine means that the believer is both justified and a sinner at the same time. And let me explain what that means. That, that as a believer, you are a sinner and at the same time righteous. Uh, you are righteous not because of what you have done, but as soon as you believe, like we said, in that, that, in that legal declaration, Christ's righteousness is attributed to you. Well, why, is that, why is that encouraging? Because uh, there are days... When you don't feel righteous, am I right? There are days when you feel anything but, and you just feel condemned because you're rehearsing in your own mind uh, all of the sins that you know separates you from God. Now, and when you are in uh, despair, when you are, are are feeling discouraged, you're like, I I can't stand before God right now. And you, hey, you're right, but but your righteousness isn't your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness which has been placed upon you. Your sin was taken and placed upon Christ. Listen to Isaiah 53. says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, when when you feel unrighteous, what, what do we need to remember? That your sin was placed upon Christ on the cross, uh, and uh, if you believe in him, your his righteousness is placed upon you. Second Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On those days when we feel uh, discouraged and distant from God because of our sin, we need to remember that our righteousness, our standing before God, isn't based upon what I've done, but what Christ has done. And that gives us hope in the middle of those discouraging days. Uh, And uh, then we we can have that balance like the Apostle Paul. At the end of Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And we often feel like that when we are weighed down with sin. I'm a wretched individual, and who can rescue me? But the very next verse, he says this, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He says, hey, there's this tension that's there. I'm a wretched man, but then romans eight one the very next verse after that says, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus This reality that that christ 's righteousness is placed upon us means that we can be both righteous in the sight of God and we 're still a sinner and there's that tension, but we don 't have to we, we face no condemnation because of that, but because of christ 's righteousness, we can stand before God and on those days when we don't feel righteous, we need to remember what Christ has done on our behalf. Sixth, this doctrine extends the offer of salvation to everyone. If salvation had to be earned, would everybody be able to to achieve it? No, nobody would be able to achieve it. But this reality that salvation is by faith alone means that the, the offer of the gospel is extended to all people. And at all times, it's not only for uh, those who can afford a penance or, or those who can you know lift up and, and go a thousand miles to fight a holy war now it's it's not just for uh, those who can keep the law as it was taught in jesus' day now it wasn't just for the Pharisees and the scribes but it is for all people everywhere and if you're here this morning and and this is this is sounding new and strange to you of hey i've I've been trying to, to earn my salvation. I've been trying to, to be right with God through my own efforts, and I feel like I'm on a hamster wheel, and I'm not going anywhere. I said, well, that's, that's an accurate assessment, because you can't earn your salvation by working. You can only uh, be saved by looking to Christ in faith. And I would, I would encourage you to, to look to Christ this morning if you haven't done that. Turn, Everyone turn with me to, to Luke chapter 18. One of my favorite parables of of Jesus. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And and sometimes in in Jesus' parable, uh, you're not sure who he's speaking to or why he's speaking, but this is one of the great parables that tells us who he's speaking to and why he's saying what he's saying. Starting in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So who is he speaking to? People who thought they could earn their salvation. They thought they could be righteous in and of themselves, and they treated others with contempt. He, he says this, he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, A sinner, and then listen to Jesus' assessment of these men. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See every every other religion apart from biblical Christianity, points to the Pharisee and says, this is the one who's justified. Look at he, he does all of these great works. He's got to be the one who's in right standing with God. But Jesus looks at the tax collector who didn't, who didn't appeal to God based upon his works, who didn't say, hey, look at all the things that I've done. He looked at this humble tax collector who knew that he could not save himself. And what did he ask of God? Mercy. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Every other religion says, be like this Pharisee, be like him. But Christ says, look to this tax collector. Be like him. The the world says, do. The Bible says, it has been done for you in Christ. And now you must believe in him. And I... as we as we close out today my prayer would be that we all echo that that simple humble prayer of the tax collector lord be merciful to me the sinner not because of what not because of all of the amazing things that i've done i haven't tried to earn your your favor but lord be merciful to me because i trust in christ that he was your son that he willingly gave his life on the cross, and now I can be forgiven by placing my faith in him alone. Let's pray. Gracious God, Lord, we come to you acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging our inability. Lord, we cannot do anything to please you in ourselves. But Lord, we, we thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that he died on the cross to pay our sins. And we thank you that in order to obtain that forgiveness, we don't have to, to jump through hoops. We don't have to work every single day trying to gain your favor. Lord, all we need to do is believe. All we need to do is trust in Christ rather than ourselves. Lord, may that give us hope this morning. May that uh, give us hope tomorrow and the next day. May that be a reminder within our hearts, within our souls, in the days, weeks, months, and years to come that we are not made righteous because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And may we now continue to grow in our faith, in our trust of him. Lord, help us to be more and more acquainted with our Savior, growing in our faith each and every day. And Lord, may you sanctify us. And we thank you for what you have already done to save us through your son. Lord, we we praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name.